The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Marlon James is the author of the Man Booker Prize award-winning novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, and the novels John Crow's Devil and The Book of Night Women. And now he's published Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's the most anticipated novel I can remember going back a very long time. The New York Times called its publication one of the 10 most significant cultural events to look forward to in 2019. Marlon, welcome to The Literary Life. Thanks for having me. It's so great to be here and great to be back. It's, you've been on, this has been quite a ride that you've been on <laughs> with this new book. Give me a flavor of what it's been like over these last couple of months. Oh, uh, wow. These last couple of months, I've been basically just trying to get this book um, off the ground and um, writing and rewriting and, and um, just going through all this sort of anticipation and meeting with bookstore owners. When and did so you on. finally have it locked? When did you have to have it? Absolutely finished. Absolutely finished. It was absolutely finished, what, last year? Maybe around, the, not around December. It was absolutely finished. See, that's a good question, because even when the galleys was out, I wasn't done. I'm sure you were making changes. Yeah. I was actually surprised when the galley came out so early. So it wasn't fully done until around a, a month or so after the galleys came out. So I think around by fall, I think I'd kind of finished it. You finished it. Yeah. Then. So the galleys, the galleys that we got, those beautiful galleys, mm -hmm. are different than the book. Oh, they're quite different. Um, they're, I cut 15,000 words out. Wow. But I also put 15,000 words back in. So. <laughs> For a net gain of yeah. a net gain of zero. Yeah. So it's, 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 the, it's, it's yeah. There's some distinctive differences. So I you think. spend time with the pre-publication stuff. Mm -hmm. Then the book is published, which was last Tuesday, I guess. Right. And you've been everywhere. I, I mean, mean, it's kind of I remarkable. Mean. I saw you, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, you and I go back a long way, mm -hmm. and it's, it's always like, there he is in the New Yorker, there he mm. is in the New York Times, and then I turn on late night television and you're on the <laughs> Seth Meyers show for the second time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like a new author, like <laughs> one of those really hyped debut novelists. <laughs> um, it's, it's weird because, you know, I mean, I guess you know, this is what the, my fourth book. And, um, and for me, it was the riskiest book I've done, for me at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, so many people describe it in so many different ways. And there's a big review coming out. We're speaking on Saturday and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The New York Times is doing a very big review by uh, Michiko Kakutani, who's come out of um, retirement just to review this, more or less. Mm -hmm. And she writes, The fictional Africa in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, feels like a place map by Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Hieronymus Bosch with an assist from Salvador Dali. It's a magical, sometimes beautiful place, but also a place filled with malicious vampires, demons, witches, and necromancers, given to murder, cannibalism, and the hurling of evil spells. You know, uh, it's been described as, uh, we talked about it earlier, mm -hmm. as a kind of African Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. 
How do you describe when you, know, you talk to people? Uh, I have to I have to take the credit and the blame for African Game of Thrones because I'm the one who said it. Because I was looking for some shorthand. You know, you're talking to people, sometimes not literary people, and you have to pitch. And I'm thinking, hmm, let's see, Aliens was Jaws in Space. So, so let's give it African Game of Thrones. It wasn't... It, I, two, re- two, two reasons why I came up with that. One, I actually do... One thing I do like about Game of Thrones is that it's a world of make-believe that still insists on being adult. And as somebody who grew up in fantasy and never let go of make-believe, I've always sort of resented the whole idea that realism, whatever that might be, is some sign of maturity. And that you can actually deal with very, very adult issues and, and also push a lot of adult buttons but still being fantasy, which is what I like about Game of Thrones. Um, the other thing is, I I actually said that in a magazine I thought nobody really read. <laughs> and now it's become a meme yeah. that's all over the place. My theory is that everybody who reads that magazine works in media. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it took off. So how would you describe the novel? What, how, tell us a little bit well, about I mean, it. Well, I mean, I can describe it by the things I was reading while I was writing it. Um, I was reading a lot of ancient African and an ancient Viking and, and, and British epics. I was reading, rereading Beowulf. Um, I was reading um, the Greek tragedies like Oreste and so on. But I was also reading tons of comics. Uh, you know, uh, To me, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a sort of an anti-Odyssey, I guess. It's a bunch of you know, mercenaries um, searching for a kid who went missing three years ago. And the way it ends up is that the kid ends up dead, the child ends up dead, and people want to know why, what happened. And in this novel, the first witness, his name is Tracker, pretty much tells his version of the story. But the way the novel is going to work, or rather the way the, the, the trilogy, trilogy right. is going to work, a trilogy. is that each novel is a different character telling the same story. Kind of Rashomon. Very Rashomon-like. Um, yeah, so... and, and um, and their perspectives, you know, the perspectives are going to be very, very different, um, radically different, actually. So you might make a, you might, you know, you might have an, a, develop an attachment to a character in the first book, and be horrified by what they turn into in the second book. Right. Um, but that's how, you know, that's how it's. Um, and the idea post. is whether or not you can trust the narrator mm-hmm. who's telling the story in whatever book they're in. Yeah, because African folklore, a lot of African folk tales are told by the trickster. Right. Or they're about the trickster, so you already you already have to deal with the the fact that you might be led on, you know that you might be deceived, but that's a part of that is also a part of the ancient kind of storytelling, that um, deciding, figuring out what is true is usually the reader or the listener has to do that. Well, the, the interesting thing to me was when you and I had a lunch, it was a few years ago, and I was asking what you're working on. Mm-hmm. And to your credit, you did not say an African game of thrones, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> but you did tell me that you were doing this elaborate kind of mythological mm-hmm. story that you were afraid was going to be like 1,500 pages in a novel. <laughs> I don't know that the trilogy had come quite come to mind just yet, mm-hmm. or maybe it did. But um, what was clear to me at the time that we spoke and it might have been the time that you were right in the heart of doing the research for mm-hmm. it because you were talking a little bit to me about 
all these different mythological things mm-hmm. that you were discovering. Yeah. Talk, so talk about the research. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can st- I talk about the end of all that research referring to the beginning of it. The end of all that research is that it ended up profoundly influencing, if not changing the book. The, the stuff I was uncovering, the book started to write itself, um, which to me is what I always want from research. That I want it to throw my ideas off course and I want it to sort of take me in a direction I could never have without the research. Well, there's a real interesting uh, image that I read somewhere, the image of the post-it notes all over your office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll talk about that just a yeah, second. That was just... When you do research, you plot... Oh, yeah. I, I Anything that's notable in the book, um, I write it on a post-it and stick it on the wall because I'm not going to open the book and flip through while I'm writing, but if I'm writing... And glancing up on the wall, I'll see things written. But then you ignore them all, is what I remember. I ignore, I ignore quite a bit of it, especially if it's a plot line. If it's a, the, 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 the notes I'll pay attention to, the plots I completely right. ignore. Because at some point, characters become people and they start to do things that people you don't expect from people. So I don't want to end up with a book that ends up being too schematic and too predictable because of just my view right. of it. I like when characters become people and don't listen to me anymore. And I just try to keep up. Um, but to come back to the, the, the yeah, research, to I mean, I did around two years of research and also I had an assistant who also did two years of research every, and pretty much everything. Because when I write, when I find a sit down to actually write a novel, I like to be able to move straight from beginning to end. So you feel steeped in the right. world. Yeah. And you're just sort of channeling that world. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And I, and I never, I usually don't stop researching until I feel that. Did you did you do the second one at the same time? No, no. So you stopped at that first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't written the second one yet, or at least I how long did it take you to actually write the novel? The actual writing itself was around a year and four months. Oh, so it was actually less than the research. Yeah. So you were like in a fever dream writing mm-hmm. this novel. Yeah. Wow. But you know, the other thing that struck with me in knowing a little bit about you and and reading a little bit more is all of the things that you've woven into this book, all of the references, all the mythology, this flows very naturally from your own reading habits mm-hmm. and who you really are, you know, mm-hmm. who you, the kind of reading you did as a young person mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the young Marlon James as a reader mm-hmm. and what that was like. Um, a lot of it, particularly when we're going way back, is just stuff that my parents had laying around they just tended to have lots of interesting stuff lying around. Um, encyclopedias, but also books on Greek mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, which I gobbled up, mostly because the people were naked, but <laughs> <laughs> actually eventually read it. Uh, you know, my mom had O. Henry stories, and and um, and these, there used to be these huge compiled volumes of Reader's Digest stories right? Um, that she would have tons of. Um, so, you know, I'd be reading all these people, um, you know, sometimes excerpts from Carson McCullers and not realizing until I'm an adult or at least I'm in college reading something and going, I've read this before. Um, so there was always, there was always stuff lying around and it's not as if either parent was, um, actively encouraging me to read. It just made sure there was material around when Tell I chose to. Tell me about your parents. Tell me you know, my, my parents, are, I mean, my mom was a detective. She was a police detective. My dad was a cop for a while and he became a lawyer. Um, 
you know, middle class. You know, my dad was the first of his family to go to college. Um, my mom joined the force. She was one of the first women to be promoted to detective. Um, well, wow. you know, but, but you know, they they. It's funny because on one way, in one hand they were strict, but on the other hand they actually parented with a really light touch. Like uh, in Jamaica, for example, I mean, kids have so much pressure for exams for high school. You know, I mean, your your, I mean, their parents would, you know, back in my day would beat their kids over that. Mm. Whereas they just like, you know what, whatever, man. <laughs> If you pass, you pass. If you fail, you fail. You're still the same person. And you had how many mm. brothers and sisters when I, you were growing up? When I was growing up, there were I had two brothers and one sister. Um, you know, I have some brothers and sisters from before my dad's marriage, uh -huh. and another brother outside. Uh, but it was just it was four of us at the core growing up. But you read you read comics. Comics mm -hmm. were a big part of what you read as comics well. Comics were a huge part. Um, yeah. You know, my my. Um, Sci-fi childhood and adolescence was never the you know was not the the, the great Sunday classics. I didn't re I didn't read Dune till I was like forty, um, and I certainly didn't read Lord of the Rings until after the movies came out. Because I mean, those books wouldn't have been available right in the average Jamaican you know classroom or the average community library. So I ended up reading lots of comics, or I ended up reading, who you know. Um, Whichever adult left around an issue of heavy metal, <laughs> right? You know, magazine. Well, music was always a big part of your life. Yeah, um, huge part of my life. Um, you know, from first time I heard Prince in 1984, and um, you know, I mean, I write books to music. Um, I wrote. I mean, I wrote this to tons of Miles Davis. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Miles Davis seventy stuff, tons of Herbie Hancock mm -hmm. stuff like Mwandishi and Sextant. Sure. Um, lots of German stuff like Can and No, and Faust and 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 so on. Because I like, you know, I, it's a book with rhythm. I need to listen to rhythm when I'm writing. You know. So your I'm journey, it. your journey from Jamaica, you left home to go to university. Did you go to mm -hmm. University of West Indies? Yeah, you did. Yeah, so I stayed in Jamaica for pretty much all of undergrad. And then when they came over um, to the States to do my MFA. But yeah, a lot of my, my first creative writing class was in Kingston. You know, it was a Jamaican novelist named John Hearn. Uh -huh. And he was my creative writing teacher. And um, that was the first time I, I actually even knew. I, well, I mean, I was writing before, but I didn't think, I didn't know if I was any good. <laughs> when did you know that you were good? When did you know I that it was if I something? Know if I'm good. Well, I, you know, I know that you wrote, and then you got. Did you get an MFA uh, mm -hmm. at some point? I got an MFA. I think, I I can answer. I know when I knew I was a writer. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. What I, meant. I knew I was a writer when I was on tour for my second novel. When somebody asked me what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this, and I mean, I've done everything, pretty much, and yet I couldn't answer the question. And I tried really hard to answer it because I figured I've done, a, there's so many things I can fall back on. And I was like, I, I actually don't know. I don't have an answer to that. It's like, this is it. There is, there is nothing else. And the things that you did leading up to that included your graphic designer. Yeah, graphic designer, advertising, producing photo shoots, art directing, drawing storyboards, um, Sign painting at one point. Did you study that in at university? None of that I studied in university. No. All that I learned on my own. Wow. 
Um, and was that done in Jamaica or in mm-hmm. New York? In Jamaica. Yeah, in Jamaica. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so many things. And um, when yeah, when when I was asked what would I be doing, I go, I this is it. And the journey that took you from Jamaica to the United States was what exactly? What what made you make that jump? Well, one was a job. Um, you know, I, I, I got a job as a professor at McAllister College in St. Paul. Um, you know, there was that. There was also, you know, me leaving Jamaica as a gay man. But I think sometimes when people hear that, they may, they do the shorthand of gay Jamaica. You must have, you know, escaped gay bashing or so on. And my reasons were all internal. I mean, yes, it was a fear, but it was a fear within me. It's not a fear because of something happened. Sure. But I don't think you need something to happen. I think one of the things about Jamaica that used to bother, used to scare my mom um, when things were bad, wasn't whether or not something was going to happen. In fact, nothing happened to us. It's the fear that it could. Right. And that was enough. And the same thing with me. Nothing happened to me. Right. But there was always a fear that it could. And I think that's what that as it was a, certainly another thing that that you know drove me to leave and to come here to the states. And and the fact that you were able to make that transition here, um, you knew that it would be a little bit more hospitable because you used to come here on your own anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talk about coming to Miami. You know, uh, Miami was what did you call it? It was the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the twenty first. Oh. Because uh, I think Kingston's last Kingston has twenty zones, so we always call Miami Kingston twenty one. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So you would come over here to Miami, and there was a sense of being able to be a bit more free. But I mm-hmm. take what you're saying in terms of, you know, people were frightened of being in Jamaica for a lot of different reasons: mm-hmm. political reasons, economic reasons, right. all kinds of reasons. That, yeah, and there was always that sense of fear. Which, um, yeah, what may I mean? I didn't, I don't know if, if the fear drove me so much as the fact, as a, the fact for me that I'd kind of run, you know, reached the end of myself. Like, um, there's also the simple fact that I wanted to be a writer, right? And that, um, I don't think I didn't think at the time that I could have had a writing life, um, there. Um, certainly not in in a way that would 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 support my writing. I remember once asking a friend of mine at University of Western is what would it take for me to teach her, and and she said, well, either one of us professors have to die, <laughs> or you become too big a writer to ignore. Okay, and I'm sure some have died, and now you've been <laughs> now you're too big of a writer. Yeah, to, it's too to late ignore, now, but you were already working there. <laughs> I know that uh, Johnny Temple at Akashic, uh mm-hmm. was very significant in your development as a writer. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that as well. Well, before Johnny, there was Kaylee Jones. Kaylee Jones, of course. Um, you know who came to Jamaica uh, because the Calabash Writers Festival had a workshop, and she was actually a last minute replacement because the, the, the previous author couldn't make it. And by then, I had totally given up on being a writer. I had no, I mean, I had very little interest in being it. I had finished my first novel. It got rejected everywhere. I was, you know, pretty much accepted that this was, that this was, this was just not my future. And that other possible futures, I was pursuing them. And, and um, you know, she, I, I went to the workshop, and she just kept insisting on seeing my work was that john crow's devil yeah yeah 
and she kept insisting on seeing it and I had already gotten rid of this manuscript I destroyed it um, and she wouldn't but she wouldn't go without it and I found it in a you know an email outbox um, tried to print it and give to her and she fell for it she really fell in you know in love with it and um, which was surprised because it surprised me because so many people rejected it before and she showed it to Johnny Temple the publisher and he fell for it and um, so you didn't know so she introduced you to Johnny mm-hmm. pretty much yeah that's great yeah and you know the rest is a rest he he loved it he produced it um i remember we have a funny discussion i remember um him saying to me you know i mean we're a cash it we're a small press we don't have a lot but one thing i can one thing i can promise you is that your book will never go out of print yeah which i didn't true. think was I, I mean i remember thinking back then i don't care about that i want money <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm realizing what a great thing <laughs> that is. It is amazing. And and I have friends who don't realize they're out of print. They don't realize now that they're out of print. Yeah, they don't realize it. Because the publisher isn't telling them. So, yeah. Because the rights would revert back after a certain period mm-hmm. of time. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. talk, I mean, and these are books that were published by major publishers. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. And they're moving more to print on demand mm-hmm. so that... If if they're not in the bookstore, nobody sees it, nobody mm-hmm. asks for it. Therefore, it's never on demand, mm-hmm. so to speak. But Johnny was—I first heard of you through Johnny. I mean, you remember we opened up a bookstore in the Cayman Islands. Right. And Johnny invited you to come mm-hmm. down to that, and that's where we first met. And Johnny was a big, big fan. To this day, he still is. I mean, you know, uh, I think he's such a wonderful guy. We're still really close. Getting back to the book, getting back mm-hmm. to Black Leopard, that that intrigued me was your the kind of moment of zen when you knew that it was going to be a trilogy because mm-hmm. you had done all this research you had created these incredibly um complex characters and narrative structures and then it was kind of a popular television show right mm-hmm. that was what gave you this kind of yeah, light bulb that went off yeah it's funny because it's funny because i still haven't seen the show <laughs> I stopped watching after the first season. Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. It was me talking to Melina, Melina Matsukas, the director. And we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about approaches to write a TV show. And she said she always loved the approach of the TV show, The Affair. Um, you know, the, the, the two different perspectives and the perspectives not adding up. And that was a eureka moment for me because I knew... I knew if I wrote the trilogy as a part one, part two, part three, I'd get bored. And I wanted to do something that excites me to write it. Even, you know, or else I don't think somebody's going to be excited to read it. And the idea that the stories could move associatively instead of a linear fashion, that it could be actually different perspectives on the same thing. I mean, it's not a new, necessarily a new idea. I mean, Jane Gardam did it with Old Filth. Right. Um, the Alexandra Quartet is kind of like that, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it it the possibilities just exploded when I thought of that. That um, to go back to the, the pretty much go back to the scene of the crime with a different detective or a yeah. different witness, and you can you can have the same characters be viewed through a different lens, precisely, and they can be doing different things. Mm-hmm. If you and I do something, you know. Doing this, we're both kind mm. of very different views of yeah. t- in terms of what this was. Yeah, if we walk outside right now and somebody is just gobbling down a bag of chips, you might think he's greedy and I might think he's hungry. Perfect. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So you can actually explore in more depth mm -hmm. all of these amazing characters that you've created. Yeah. But it also throws a lot of... I said I, I'm trusting the reader a lot with this trilogy because I'm throwing the burden of, of truth on them. Right. Because I'm not... I'm not throwing any hints as to which version of this book you should believe or which version of whose book you should believe, whose story you should believe. Um, reader is, reader is going to have to choose. So I can't just imagine the wars that's going to spring up on Reddit. I am Team Leopard. I am Team <laughs> Leopard. I was like, well, you know what? That's the way in which I guess the book can have its own afterlife where the reader decides well okay. that's ultimately it is the reader because mm -hmm. ultimately it's the reader's experience yeah and you put it into motion but it's the reader that yeah either understands it doesn't mm -hmm. understand it or goes somewhere else with it i think writers can do a lot of things with books i don't think writers can make books come alive yeah i i, agree I think readers do that it's in their imagination yeah. completely it's it's you know in the absence of a say in the absence of a film if two million people read Lord of the Rings, that was two million different Frodo's. Completely. And two million different Middle Earths. No, we only have one. <laughs> I don't knock it because I love the films. But uh, it's, it's everybody else had their own world. And, and the thing that fascinates me is knowing, say, a hundred people have picked up this book and has a hundred different versions of the right. same thing. It's, to, to that point, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. So... I once had Art Spiegelman in, and he gave, his whole presentation was basically a talk about how to read a graphic novel, mm -hmm. how to read a comic, in essence, right. was what he was doing. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people approach these things, they don't know whether to go across, they don't know whether to go down, mm -hmm. whatever. Your book is so rich and so thick, and, and you know, just looking at the, you know, in the, in the beginning with all the list of characters mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. The responsibility is on the reader. Mm -hmm. Art is not meant to be easy necessarily, mm -hmm. but is there any kind of a guide or any advice you could give to a reader mm. who's just starting out, who may not have mm. the knowledge that you have mm -hmm. in African mythology of mm -hmm. do the research? How would you like that? What should they go in and how should they approach it? I think the reader should not be afraid of getting lost. I think we're too afraid of getting lost. I mean, with good reason, I think. But I think it's... it's Sort of let it wash over. Let it wash over you. It's, it's fine if you're adrift. You're supposed to be. What you've been able to do, because a lot, a lot of people don't necessarily approach fantasy or mystery. Mm. And this is not mm. necessarily a fantasy you know, or a science fiction in the mm. traditional sense. Right. And so it's going to cross genres in mm. that sense, which it should. Yeah. I mean, at one point, I think I read somewhere where you said that, what did you say about there are too many writers who have their ass up, their head up their yes. ass because of, <laughs> am I pulling back quotes that you're... No, nah, I might have said wanna, that. That sounds like something I would say. Well, only because they're not reading enough genre stuff mm -hmm. and they're not, yeah. you know, they're stuck in one kind of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be bringing a lot of people to fantasy in a way that they wouldn't normally have mm -hmm. been. Mm -hmm. And I think to hear you talk about that is extremely important. Yeah. It's, it's, well, one, I hope people do end up reading more fantasy. Um, not that fantasy needs their help. Um, I, but I also think that um, the world of fantastical and make-believe is something that has never left literary fiction. Um, you know, I mean, that's magical realism. Yeah. Perfect. And, 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 you know, and so on. 
Um, but I do think that regardless, I think sometimes people feel more secure in a li- with a linear story. And I remember reading Arabian Nights. I know a story led to a story led to a story led to a story. And, and, and you just, at some point, you just have to, you just surrender to it. Um, if a car, if somebody is worried about forgetting a character, say, well, that's why I have a character list at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, if you're worried about forgetting a character, you will. You absolutely will. Well, you've created such a world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've really, it's all about world building. In yeah. And, did. and I mean. So to experience a new world, it's like travel. Precisely. You have to feel lost in this mm-hmm. new world for a while, yeah. right? It's, and usually that's the time you make discoveries. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. You know, I'm a big fan, so I listen to you on you know other mm. podcasts or I hear interviews with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always amazed at just how knowledgeable you are and how steeped you are in so many different things, mm-hmm. including popular culture, but not only popular culture. I mean, the most, a lot of esoteric writers, mm-hmm. you know, your reading is so all over the place. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. So beautifully all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I'm so envious of someone who can read like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I have for you is, uh, you know, who are you reading? What are you reading? What What do you like to read? I read, I read one of the reasons why I think I read anything or read, I read so many things is that I was always just so hungry for books, I would take any book. Um, all it had to be was available. That's when you were a kid. That's when I was a kid. And it's something I never really let go of. Like, I will read Marquez, but I'm going to read comics, and I'm going to read Jonathan Franzen, and I'm going to read Helen Fielding. I, I just never developed a snobbery about literature. I just thought different books have their place, yeah. But I just never... The whole idea of this is a good book, this is a bad book. Right. I don't even like, allow that type of criticism in my class. Right. It's like, I really don't give a damn what you think is good or bad. <laughs> good or bad. That's lazy critique. I don't care. And, and so I've always had this sort of everything. Because it's whatever I could get, whatever was available, whatever I could you know borrow, whatever I could steal, whatever I could buy, whatever money I had, and, um, and whatever was on the stand at the time. And growing up in Jamaica at the time, you didn't have a lot of choices. So you took whatever it was. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so to me... If I ended up with with um, Catcher in the Rye, that was great. But if I, but if I ended up with Hollywood, Hollywood Wives, that was also that was great. was fine, too. Yeah. No, I, I, I I spent, we spent a little bit of time, and you were browsing through the mm. fiction section. And I loved watching you go from Shirley Jackson to <laughs> something more esoteric, to mm-hmm. something more commercial. It was great. I mean, that's the way a reader ought to be. A lifetime reader yeah, is like it's... that. So you teach at McAllister, and and what do you see with students today? What do you, what what, mm-hmm. you know, the, the people you're teaching now? What what is their, you know, what, I, what are they um, like these what days? What are they like? They have, they've become a lot more politically motivated. I think because of the, the past election, um, I think that they're also be, have been forced to recognize some complexities that college students usually don't recognize. Because um, they have to deal with some complicated things. They have to deal with it's one thing is is not is one thing that grandma voted for Trump is another thing when the person in your class did. Right. And the whole I scream at you, you scream at me is not going to get anybody anywhere. Right. Um, so they've had to deal with complicated stuff like that. And there's also more discussion mm. about identity that never occurred. Anywhere. Yeah. But they also are in a very 
very um what's the word I'm looking for? I'm gonna phrase it differently. They also a lot of these kids were born in the twenty first century. So a lot of the things that have shaped our experiences and defined, you know, several years, if not decades for us, is a footnote for them. Um, so these are the kids who are now born, what, 11, almost, almost... Um, well, the 19-year-olds would have been born in 2000. They were born in 2000. These are kids who were one year old when 9-11 happened. Yeah. And they process it like an event that happened when they were a baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean... Even even John Lennon's death, I was ten years old when that happened. I still remember it vividly. Um, they so they are looking at some major major events that was present tense for us as history to them, as things they're going to learn in class, and it's really interesting watching them process things and then they decide what's important and what's well, you know what's not important. They read really widely. They listen to way too much can. They listen to way too much Kanye West, um, but at if also they have a very. This is the broadest um, idea. I'm gonna say that differently. I've never seen young people read such a wider range of books. Like I remember, if you were college, you read Catcher in the Rye, right. Sylvia Plath. That's it. Right. Maybe some Salt Bellow here and there. <laughs> yeah. But they they read so widely. Well, and you're seeing that. What's what's beautiful is you're seeing that in publishing now too. Mm -hmm. Publishing is getting far more um, diverse than it ever was. Mm -hmm. When I was, you know, when when you were getting all those rejections as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. I mean, it just it's just more and more and more uh, um, interesting in terms of what's being published, mm -hmm. and I think that's being reflected in terms of what young people. Are reading. Mm -hmm. I was just at a big thing with 700 booksellers, and most of them were young, mm -hmm. and their interests were all new, mm -hmm. young, interesting writers. It was mm -hmm. really interesting to me as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, as an aside, just for those of you who aren't familiar with, with Marlon as a professor, there was a, a student who used to work at the bookshop when he was in high school, who was a student at McAllister. Mm -hmm. And he came in just the other day and saw that you were coming. He said, oh, Marlon James, I'm going to come because, because I couldn't get into his class. <laughs> you can't get into that class. It's so popular almost on the first day of whatever so i just want you to know you're you're well thought of <laughs> out on the what's minneapolis like uh, other than uh today the, the ghost of the ghost of prince what mm -hmm. do you what do you what do you think mm -hmm. of in terms of that um you know minneapolis minneapolis remains a great book town uh and and i feel so loved as an author there more than anything else and they're really really supportive um and, you know, they, they, they take the art seriously. Um, you know, a good half of the year, it's a tundra. We have to. Uh, and it's just such a, it's always been such a, a nurturing, just great book town. It's an independent bookstore town. It's, um, and they, they, um, they really cherish their artists and writers here. So I've always, you know, I've always, every time I go back there, I feel like I'm going home. How much time do you spend in Minneapolis versus Brooklyn? Um, it, it varies. Sometimes it's 50, 50, uh, this year I'm probably going to be in Brooklyn more. Hmm. Um, but it's, but I'm always spending considerable time in both places. 
So you're going to be working on book two. Mm-hmm. Something else big happened this week where um, Michael B. Jordan got the film rights mm-hmm. uh, for, um, for this. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be. Um, I think he was, he, he was, I think he, I mean, his, his production company had had a galley. And I think when they heard that Warner Brothers was interested and so on, that they approached them. And then I got, an, they called me and we talked for a pretty long time, a good couple of hours. And even before we even talked about movie deals, just see where we are and what type of stories we want told. And, um, and I was super impressed with what they had to say about, you know, the type of stories that um, particularly black people in the diaspora um, need to see. Um, for a lot of us, Ground Zero is slavery. And I mean, I wrote a slavery novel and even I'm tired of it. Um, so the the whole hunger to tell different kind of stories, I think. Was, well, that's uh, the, the Black Panther. That's how that mm-hmm. happened as, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And so he sparked to the story and you guys talked mm-hmm. and you felt like it was going to be in good hands with yeah. him. Yeah. Who's doing the adaptation? Do we haven't gotten, gotten, you haven't that, gotten far. that far. Ju- yeah, we just started, really. Mm-hmm. Well, tonight you'll be reading here at Books and Books, Marlon. It's mm-hmm. just, I feel um, just so wonderful to see your success. That's a great, thank you. It really means a lot to us here in, at Books and Books, for me personally, for Miami in general. Uh, you know, I just wish you the best of luck as you go on. You're traveling mm-hmm. on a wide, wide tour, I know. What a place. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is, you know, the book is, uh, as they say, it's, it's uh, right out of the box and it's uh, hitting the charts with a bullet. So mm-hmm. I just wish you the Best of luck, Marlon. Thanks for being on The Literary Life. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts and also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.